1: Ah,
2: hello everybody. Hi. Um welcome to another edition of the Dangerous Dinners podcast. You know how this works by now. A celebrity guest comes over to my house. We spin a giant roulette wheel. Whatever it lands on, they have to order. And we have got a blooming great episode for you this time. We are joined by comedian extraordinaire. He's had his TV shows commissioned by the BBC. He's won awards at Edinburgh. It's Dane Baptiste. I think this is the funniest episode we've ever done. Um, Dane has me in hysterics throughout this whole thing i've listened because i edit these i've listened to it and i think i'm i think my laugh's annoying so i'm sorry if i annoy you with how much i laugh at dane i just think he's so funny especially the bit later on in the podcast where he talks about his final meal um that's a little treat for later on so i really hope you enjoyed today's episode episode number 17 uh which is crazy and little word of warning i might not be here next week So we may miss a week next Thursday because we're on holiday and it takes a lot to book people and edit it, and I don't want to do a half-assed job, because I'm on holiday. So, we, may, there may not be an episode next Thursday. There may be, there may not be. If there isn't, don't worry. Season one will continue when I'm home the week after. So, yeah, if there's not one, that's why. If you do like this podcast, please make sure you leave a rating and a review down below on Spotify and on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. We're on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. Everything is there. This episode was filmed as well, so you can go and check it out. Today's guest is dame baptiste
1: the dangerous dinners podcast with your host tom green Ow. one celebrity guest one spin of the roulette wheel and a tour of the best and worst takeaways which are delivering to us tonight what will it land on we let fake decide up for grabs today we have the poorly reviewed kansas fried chicken everybody's favorite lahore karahi if it all goes wrong pizza palace but before we do that it's time to meet our celebrity guest they're famous they're funny and they just arrived downstairs it's time to bring them up please welcome
2: it's Dave Baptiste! How are you
3: doing, man? I'm good. I don't really know how to cheer for myself. I find I find <laughs> it very cringe-inducing to be like, Yeah, it's me! Although, you know, self-belief is important, but there's a, there's a line. But I'm good. How are you?
2: Yeah, I'm alright, man. I'm alright. We do kind of get a 50-50 split of the guests that will cheer themselves and the yeah. guests that are just a bit like, This is quite awkward. I don't know what to do.
3: Yeah, and I think i sit somewhere in between that, in that, like, I've learned to kind of... You know, make sure I help you with the steerage, but at the same time, not not dominate too much. First impressions yeah. and all that.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing the podcast, firstly. Thank you for having me. It's uh, I mean,
3: food talking can't beat it.
2: I sort of find sometimes it feels weird that this is my job now is chatting with people and eating food, but I I love it. I bloody love it. Listen, there's somewhere in the world where
3: somebody would give their left fork. To be able to do it yeah. for a living. Relish it, we
2: relish, relish it. And you've been actually outside working today, which has only been available to us, what, for the last few days? You've actually been to Shoreditch House and doing some actual work. I have been, yeah. And
3: I don't want to, like, you know, try and uh, brag about the fact that I'm appearing to be industrious. It's just that I believe if I'm out of my house, then my pornography temptations are reduced by about <laughs> 97.8%. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just nice to get out and travel and stuff and... Uh, you know, try and get the creative juices flowing again, try and get in some kind of routine. But no, I'm happy to be back outside, Tom. That's the main thing.
2: That's one of the sewer house rules, isn't it? It's no cameras, don't ask for photos of people and don't watch porn. Pretty much. And
3: you'd think, right, that like they wouldn't have to say don't watch porn, <laughs> but history has taught us that they have to say it. And if I can educate <laughs> as well as entertain on this podcast, can I just let the listeners know, do not watch pornography on your work laptop. Just don't do it. You don't know what's going to happen after post-coital climax and you forget to delete <laughs> your history or delete your search bar or properly delete your search bar if you've got one in, like, in your, uh, like, you've got two search bars. Just don't do it and maybe just use like, maybe use like Duck DuckDuckGo. that no, I'm trying to endorse any particular kind of search engine, but use one where sure. you can't be tracked because you don't want any <laughs> cookies coming up. You don't want to be looking at it. Here, guys, here's the presentation. Just going to get rid of this advert and it's like for a bigger penis. So yeah, <laughs> just, avoid just avoid it.
2: Hold on. Is this coming from personal experience? Please say this
3: has happened to you. Um, not myself directly, but I've been witness to somebody who's very, very clearly not understood that, you know, that work laptop will have to go back to the employer at some point. Um, let's just say that he was... Careless in his conduct, but very,
2: very supportive of Kira Knightley. I can say nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and who isn't? Who isn't my guy? Who bloody yeah, isn't? This is I, true.
3: This is true. Although I just between *Bend It Like Beckham* and *Pirates of the Caribbean*, they never really elicited any kind of arousing feelings towards Kira Knightley. I think I admired her for her artistry a lot more than her yeah. sexuality. In that case, not to say that she's not a sexual being; she most definitely is. But you know, mm. when you're watching her swashbuckling, there's, I'm not really like, "Oh yeah, there's a nice <laughs> bit of swash there." by <laughs> yeah, so the, line, the way she grabs that rope pretty handy with a cutlass
2: I always find it weird when have you ever seen someone, I've seen this every now and again on the train where you'll like look over someone's shoulder and they're watching porn on the train, I've seen that in real life and I'm like my god mate, there's other places to do this, there are so many other places,
3: now You have you can kind of have that at your fingertips and you know, I feel like if you can't wait until you are in private, you might have a problem I I, I don't see it being that difficult for us to pass legislation so that pornography goes the way that smoking does. There should be designated areas not to be done in public places. And, you know, at some point, you know, it could could really affect your uh, ability to like,
2: you know, breathe and exercise just like smoking. So if you're just masturbating all the time, that would be a problem. Um, Then you are the only second comedian we've had on this podcast, which is a joy for me because I love comedians. I love comedy. I sort of grew up. Watching comedians and sort of in my job, I'm not a comedian. Russell Kane, who's on the podcast, said I was a comedian, and I'm not. I'm nowhere near funny enough as you guys. But how does it feel to be a comedian? Because they do attract that world, attracts a certain type of person, right? Yes, it most
3: definitely does. There is very much a comedians' complex, and there's there's like I guess there's subgenres to that same complex. But I think most comedians have uh, a number of different uh, traits in common. Whether it's like you know seeming to thrive uh on our own and also i guess sometimes feeling like at the same time an immense connection to humanity through observations but at the same time kind of a detachment which i think is important for you to be able to make objective observations and also to explore dark recesses of our mind so i think for most comedians we're the kind of people that are willing to open doors to our mind that maybe people aren't as willing to open Not necessarily mean yeah. that's always a good thing but um it has to be done i guess and the idea is about you know I guess philosophically, not taking things too seriously in life or trying to see the funny side of things, which I think is an important part of the human rationalisation process. Because, you know, they say if you don't laugh, you'll cry, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah. And here's quite a deep question quite early, but I am going to ask it. Is it okay to joke about anything? I know Ricky Gervais is a big sort of advocate of you can make a joke of anything. You should be able to laugh at anything. Where do you stand on that?
3: I agree. But I think that what uh, I think a lot of uh, people confuse that sentiment in that, I think you do have freedom of speech to say whatever you want, but you're still a human being before anything else and there are consequences to whatever you say. I don't think, we've had a time where we've had complete free speech. That's why we have libel laws and we have defamation laws, Ofcom, because if you say some wild shit then people will be like, you're not allowed to say that. So I would say there's nothing that's off limits. I think all jokes in one way or another are always going to be at somebody else's expense. And I think if you want a medium whereby people just say what you want to hear, then you're probably better off listening to politics rather than listening to comedy. So I think you yeah. can say what you want. You always have to run the risk of offending somebody. That's how the way it works. And but yeah, there's always gonna be consequences to what you say. So I agree with Ricky Gervais in, in the sense that like, you know, people should be able to say whatever they want, but people should understand that what you the words you say can have power, so
2: totally yeah. and as a comedian, do you have that thing where people think you're supposed to be funny all the time because again, like I'm quite a comedian geek, I quite like the idea of comedy, and I know there's i'm friends with some comedians who are hilarious all the time, like my mate Tom is really funny, and then there's other comedians who are dry the rest of the time they do not they do not need to be joking, they don't see it as an obligation, and you're like hey you're supposed to be funny and you're not
3: um. I think I think that's true. I think a lot of people expect you to be funny all the time. And I think at times when I'm being a little more quiet or brooding, people get really worried as if like, are you planning to murder me, Dane? I'm like, no, I'm just sometimes. <laughs> I, think, I think, you know, it's important with any kind of oratory medium that the amount of listening you do has to probably be greater than the amount of speaking you do. So there are times when I might be quite on the form and be funny and be trying to be like, you know, holding court in a room. But I think the only way I'm able to do that is if I take other times to maybe just be quiet and appreciate stillness and, yeah, observe and people watch and see how people kind of work if you're going to opine on them accurately, I think. So, yeah, I'm not funny. But I think I think that most comedians should be able to be themselves off the of stage, and I think it's really down to the individual. So some people, it might be a natural for them to kind of use comedy as, you know, the way they interact with other people. Um, but I say I, I wear different hats for different occasions, I should say. But yeah. even with my comedy, like, I didn't really kind of get the... Uh, knack for comedy because I would say stuff people would laugh by, by me making jokes it would be me about maybe ranting about something that pissed me off or basically moaning and people would be laughing and I'd be like oh, well you're not taking this seriously and, it's like the, and people would kind of <laughs> be like the way I'd say it even though they'd be in agreement and uh, yes yeah, so i kind of done a very unique way of
2: holding my comedic voice well Dane thank you so much for joining us on the Dangerous Inness podcast I always write an introduction for all my guests mm-hmm. would you like to hear yours? I would love to I really enjoy writing these. So, the man is a British comedy legend. He was the first black British comedian to be nominated for an award at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He has sitcoms commissioned by the BBC. He's hosted live at the Apollo. He wrote for Idris Elba himself. The Independent says he delivers observational comedy at its finest. And the Edinburgh Festival magazine says he's a comedy genius. Well, he's here tonight. It's Dame Baptiste. Oh, thank you so much for that wonderful bio. What a few years you've had. does it feel weird looking back on your career like that and going, my God, I have achieved a shitload of stuff?
3: Um, it, it didn't feel weird up until recently. I'd say I, the time I got to reflect on the achievements over the last, like say, five years was probably over 2020 when everything kind of shut down and it uh, kind of forced me to take stock of what I had done over the last over the course of my career. And then, yeah, I was uh, very grateful and humbled to realise what I'd achieved in, like, I guess, a relatively short time. You know, when people say it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And I'm not certainly there yet in terms of where I want to be career-wise. But, you know, the, the course of the five years has been very fruitful. It's been good, man. And... Um, You know, I guess when you get involved in industry, you're kind of like, you know, you're always subject to like comparison and subject to like, I suppose, yearning for wanting to have more and having that kind of envy about what you're doing with your career. But um, yeah, especially the last year, allowed me to remember that, you know, the idea was of this whole endeavor was to be able to be in a position whereby I could make a living from doing something I enjoyed, which I'm able to do now. So I am eternally grateful. So yeah, I do a lot. Before I wouldn't, I'd I'd kind of have my head down and have the blinkers on and be tunnel vision towards the next goal. But I've taken the time now to stop and smell the flowers and just, yeah, appreciate, especially in a time when not everyone's able to realise their livelihoods due to uh, recent uh, global issues. Um, But, yeah, I've been grateful enough to continue to work and, you know, have a fan base and uh, have people appreciate what I do.
2: And that's all that matters. That is exciting. Has, Has lockdown changed your mindset to all that? I guess i I, maybe you're similar to me in the sense that you were running at 100 miles an hour at something and over the last year and a half you've sort of prioritized other things and maybe they have more value now for you
3: absolutely absolutely i mean i would like to think part of it was uh part of my drive motivation is like you know you want to be a good you want to be a good son you want to be a good brother like a good cousin and, and provide and you know be a point of pride for your family and stuff like that but um i think i realized especially over the last year or so is that the best way to do that is to just continue to be a supportive and loving member of a family or a group of friends and yeah that's definitely i've definitely gained a lot of perspective especially over the last year and um yeah it's, it's allowed me to be very grounded um as i said i think in this era the advent of social media and stuff we can all be very tempted to compare our lives to others and to be taken in by these highlight reels that people present as their real lives but yeah i've been able to just take stock of what i have and as i say like you know the main thing is that I'm able to make a living from doing something I enjoy you know on a large scale I'm able to sometimes help out and take care of family and friends if I need to or want to and not to be too morbid on the podcast but I'll tell you one thing that definitely changed my perspective was uh, Kobe Bryant's death because that's somebody I would look at and be like that guy has achieved in ways that I could only dream of and only aspire to, you know, not only being an accomplished athlete as well as do rapping and producing movies and basically, you know, being able to fulfill all of his creative aspirations, but also being like, you know, a loving father and, a, you know, as well as a husband. Yeah, it's just so tragically that can be taken away from you just like that. And, you know, I'd have argued that's somebody that was sitting on the top of the world. So it really kind of woke me up to realize that like, as much as you can try and work to you know, achieve all of your objectives, you know, none, life is not promised to any of us. So rather yeah. than me always being like, what's the next goal, what's the next goal? I've kind of learned to take every day at a time, enjoy that experience, a negative day, you can reflect on that, keep it going. Uh, a wise woman once told me about, um, the analogy was uh, Tiger Woods. And I think it was the 11 paces thing, Whereas, like, if you right. miss a hole, rather than being like, oh, I missed it. It's like, you've got 11 paces until the next hole. To get over it and get pissed off, and then it's time to start again. So yeah, yeah. I think I've I've tried to kind of take that mindset where it's like you know there are going to be pitfalls in what I do. You know, I think any creative, any person with their own aspirations could tell you for every yes there are like ten nos. But I've (laughs) learned to kind of take those in my stride, and you know, over the course of time, realize that this career has never had a clear trajectory, and you know, nothing happens at the same time. It's a marathon, not a race. Yeah, keep pace, and uh, you know, and be grateful for the people that are supporting you on this journey. So yeah, it's, it's definitely allowed me to not take things too seriously, which is always supposed to be the philosophy of comedy in the first place.
2: Well, tonight we can be grateful for really bad or really good takeaway, depending on how this bad boy behind me lands for you. So this is the idea of the podcast. I've got a giant roulette wheel behind me. I'm going to spin it. Whatever it lands on is what you're going to be eating tonight. All right? All right. (laughs) What would be a shocker for you? What don't you want this bad boy to land on?
3: You know what, Tom? I'm just happy to eat something. I, I, that's okay i, I, I want to i want to avoid maybe something that hasn't looked like lactose and pork other things that kind of set me off so yeah hopefully it's nothing that involves that but just some yeah. whatever as long as you know on the way out it's not that much as unpleasant as on the way in <laughs> so that's the kind of way to put it uh, sure the ratio should be i want it to be more pleasant on the way in than the way out so yeah. i get you Milky pork would be bad for you If it landed yeah, on pork, that pork, buttermilk pork Would be bad for me, yeah <laughs> <laughs> The okay, thing well, is well, I
2: say that, Tom But the next time someone's He's going to go Mmm, buttermilk pork That's Yeah That could work That sounds good Right, I'm going to I'm going to give it a spin And we're going to find out What you're having for dinner tonight Alright? All right? Alright, Okay, here we go <laughs>
1: It's n- <laughs>
3: we give thanks we give thanks
2: what do you (laughs) fancy what do you you fancy what's your order what by the way we'll be be bleeping so I need to describe what it is it's the classic peri chicken place
3: yeah it's the the, originating in South Africa uh, Portuguese cuisine you know, more succinctly put, is the one where people are like. Do you know what would be we call? What if we took KFC, got rid of the skin, and added the cutlery? Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Right. What um, do you fancy, man? Oh, may I please have uh, chicken and pitta? And you want it extra hot, yeah? No, is uh, medium, medium, please. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's not risk it. Hammer what sides? What's the sides order? Oh, or I can I have some
3: fries, just regular ones without the peri peri salt, just a regular fries. Yeah. And can yeah. I have that with um? Macho peas, please.
2: Yeah, man. Of course you can. got
3: to have something green. My heart was, my mind was saying, you know, my heart was saying coastal and corn on the cob. But my mind was like, yeah, have something green because blah, blah, blah.
2: Boring rules. I always like to go for the chips and the garlic bread. I double carb. I like that. I really like that. I always, I always double carb. I'm going to send you three chicken wings extra hot. All right. Yes, please. And we will just vibe out how that feels later (laughs) on the podcast. We'll vibe out. Um, We'll just see how it feels, man. If we're getting on, we'll do it. If not, it'll never get mentioned again.
3: Or we come back to the edit and we could add the additional suffering I go through when I'm cursing your name, drinking a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Dude, yeah. this you,
3: can,
2: you can voice note me the next morning I, I, I'll, I'll definitely uh, will
3: hold it right by my
2: butt <laughs> <laughs> We are in business Nice, nice uh, Dane, dinner is, on, dinner is on me tonight Thank you very much, I'm so grateful I was hoping there's some real ropey stuff behind me And you've got off so lucky getting Nando's I really have,
3: even, even like chicken being my favourite of the meats Even having the grilled version is me getting off lightly That could have very oh. easily been coated in 11 herbs and spices and deep fried, which I would have definitely eaten as well. Pretty big on Kentucky fried chicken, Korean fried yes. chicken, Kingston yes. fried chicken, Kettering fried chicken. But, you know, <laughs> less big, less big. Is it. Yeah, so all the post all the postcode chicken gangs, I've, 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 you know, I've dabbled with all of them. Done them all. There
2: is a fried chicken. This is one of my favorite things to get in America. And I'm going to Google it now. Fried chicken and mash restaurant. Popeyes.
3: Oh, yeah, I know. Popeyes Louisiana Kitchen. Of course, I know Popeyes. Chicken and shrimp.
2: (sighs) That is the best thing. Like, that is me in my most happiest place with that and mash and gravy and and just that's me.
3: Don't forget the biscuits. Oh, man. Love the biscuits. They're my my favourite.
2: Biscuits are a weird one as well because we don't really have anything like it in the UK. It's like a salty scone.
3: Yeah, basically, like a salty, fluffy scone. And guess this, Tom. (laughs) I actually made it from scratch the other day i got imported a box of bisquick which is like the mix you add a bit of wow I like to have non lactose free milk and yeah. you know mix that into a dough eight to 12 minutes and you've got your own fresh biscuits fresh out of the oven so wow. i can now make my own homemade popeyes because there's another place too called sweet chick which right. is a, a restaurant chain that's co-founded by nars they do fried chicken they do waffles and get this they got like five different flavors of butter tom of butter
2: what the hell
3: i'm telling you so the, that's how good that place is and they even they've even got a vegan option although if you go to a fried chicken restaurant for a vegan option what you're doing is taking up the place of somebody that could actually enjoy that food (laughs) and you should be ashamed of
2: yourself get the hell out of the restaurant man seriously
3: if you go to like nando's i'm not saying obviously people should take into account or heed dietary requirements i'm completely on board with that but if you specifically choose a place like nando's and then go is there a vegan option someone should slap you with a menu and be like do you (laughs) think this is at the top of this
2: (laughs) You've got it all wrong, especially back in the day when you had to queue for Nando's. Nando's in Preston where I'm from used to be a 40-minute queue. If someone in the table is doing vegan food and you're outside wanting the chicken, that's annoying.
3: You're wasting everyone's time. Everything you're eating could have been bought at Sainsbury's at home. (laughs) And and, and especially now where you can buy all the Nando's sauces from the shelf of a supermarket, there's no reason for a vegan to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, vegans. I know there should be safe spaces for you. I completely support your lifestyles but not at a restaurant which headlines chicken. Like pizza, that's fine, because they're about pizzas. You know, most yeah. pizzas can be vegan with you, if you do something with the cheese. Although vegan cheese should really be called bitch please because the technology <laughs> is not there yet, Tom. It is not <laughs> there yet.
2: Have you noticed as well, this is a big thing now. If you go to a restaurant, like if you're a vegetarian, like my girlfriend's not a vegetarian, but doesn't eat much meat. These days, restaurants will make the vegetarian option also vegan. So if you're just a happy vegetarian, but you want some of that real life cheese, that is taken away from you now. You just have to go down and dirty with the vegans.
3: Exactly. There's no longer like a nutritional spectrum anymore. Before they used to have like, you had fruitarian, then vegan. Then you had like vegetarian, then pescatarian flexitarian that's a thing sure full-on carnivore and then yeah texan american <laughs> they'll eat anything they will eat anything as long as you put it in some nice gravy because they use that, oh. that can we talk like that white gravy you get at like american restaurants oh, is that mate. good have you tried it I'm i'm not sure of about white gravy
2: mate for me like i feel my the cuisine that i'm most at home at is like texas food like they have the big old barrels And they're just smoking stuff in there for days Oh yeah I'm And you get out some smoked ribs And it's like That for me, that's it That's what I want all my food to be like That's like me with jerk drums Like when I used to grow up yes. And stuff I mean, in the summertime When
3: we were going out you drive from like Lucian you drive through Peckham You'd see um, like this guy Just on the road Just like with a big drum just making jokes, Yeah. And I would be like, oh, I'll be there. I'll be seeing you on the way back. Mm, mm. <laughs> I love that. I got a weird thing as well. Like, there's a smell. Like, I'm like yourself as well. I like, I've got, a, there's, there's certain food smells that will always grab me. One is like frying onions on a burger van. Oh, yes, please. Um, jerk, jerk on the drum. And also yeah. processed sugar at fairgrounds. Wow. It's like about a that smell. Candy floss like candy thing. Candy floss, the big red dummy lip dummies and things that people buy. The smell of those yeah. things. Oh, like rock. Oh, oh yeah the smell of rock seaside rock i just i love it i don't know if it's nostalgic or i don't know if it's just due to having an inherent addiction towards sugar
2: are you a sugar guy is that is that is that your thing
3: um I, I very i kind of flip between it i think as i've got older my pets maybe been a bit more sophisticated in that when i go to dinner now i'm gonna go for a dessert but then i have a cocktail so i guess i am still yeah. kind of like a sugar guy but i'm just more mature with it so rather than having an apple pie i'll have like an apertini.
2: my happy place is is pick and mix
3: oh yeah although had a very bad experience many years ago in university and i don't want to ruin this for you so you might not want to listen to this because this might be like trying to find out that your favorite pop star has very little respect for women but here goes so i used to go to bradford university and at the cinema used to do a student discount every tuesday where you get like a ticket for like i think it was like a ticket for like two quid and we'd always wow. go and i got pick and mix and the next day had the worst food poisoning I've ever had in my entire life. And so bad that I couldn't have solid food for two days and I had to go what? to see the GP and he gave me a little uh, tube and was like, "We well, can take a sample. And I was like, it's a weird thing for a urine sample. There's a spoon in it. And he was like, no, it's a for a stool sample. And I was like, okay. So I've worked hard in order to get to university, in order to kind of maximise my academic potential. And you want me yeah. to take a shit in the toilet and then go back into the toilet <laughs> with a spoon, sir. <laughs> and I shan't. I won't I be doing sir. that. And I, got, I got well very quickly with some dry wholemeal toast and a hell of a lot yeah. of Vinto to get those electrolytes back. And I think it's just down to the fact that like, Cause kids use pick and mix and kids are disgusting.
2: Dirty hands in, up in Dirty, there.
3: Grubby hands, touching the stuff. The big old yeah. uh, gelatin snakes, they're grabbing one. Mum's like, put that back yeah. now. He's put it back. <laughs> That's kind <couple laughs> of disgustingness. The foam eggs are disgusting. The vampire teeth. You know, kids like those little the discs that dissolve, they're like little discs that dissolve. Like, so now with pick and mix. I have to do a very long and extensive hygiene check before I partake. And, oh. and now I've got to go to like those old vintage pick and mix places like you've seen like, you know, in like Liverpool Street in London, where they're like, well, like an old time sweet shop. but I'm just like, is <laughs> uh, just, just very gentrified, but a quarter of rhubarb and custards, please. <laughs> but yeah, I'm very big on old sweets. Yeah, ye yeah, oh yeah, exactly. Ye, I'm big on yeah. ye, ye, ye old sweets. And I, I do, I still like penny sweets. I like pick and mix. I like Haribo's, but I find them too homogenous.
2: Yeah, sure.
3: Like star mix is cool. And there's like very and tangfastics, but really, I want it all in there. I want them all. I want Fastix. Yeah. I want Starmix. I want straws. I want Vampire Teeth. I want Gummy Bears. I want them all. <laughs> you know, I want, I want to taste the fucking Rainbow Haribo.
2: Dane, I'm really worried because we're, this, this interview series is supposed to cover your life. And we've done half an hour on Pick and Mix. Well,
3: we're covering my life through food. So initially, my yeah, first story into food was like Penny Sweets. And those were delicious. Yeah. There was at one point that my local news agent was selling bags of Skittles for 15 pence. I guess they Whoa. were out of stock. And I was like, I'm going to taste the whole freaking rainbow. Yeah, To the point where I think I almost had the worst migraine I've ever had and pretty much went into a diabetic coma. And now I can't really eat Skittles. And that's really sad as well because I spend a lot of time in the States. And I don't know if your listeners know this. We have like one type of Skittles here in a red packet. There is a packet of Skittles in America for every day of the fucking week. right? (laughs) There's the red original ones. There's the green tropical ones. There's the blue forest ones. There's a yellow tropical super mix. And then there's like a purple one.
2: So you like, know why though? Why? Because over there, ah, oh, over there, there is no law on the amount of sugar you can have in stuff. That's why oh, if you go to America, you try the, you try Fanta in America, and then you try Fanta in London oh, it, is it is not the same drink. Difference.
3: There's not. It is not the same drink at all. I and I've and I've tried. I, I mean, I prefer American Fanta to British Fanta, which should give you yes. some insight onto how bad my sugar addiction is. Like, people over here, they're doing opioids. I'm straight heroin here, Tom. Straight (laughs) heroin with the sweets. (laughs) I'm playing the games.
2: Like, do you remember when they tried to bring Mountain Dew to the UK? They've still not done it. I I loved Mountain Dew growing up, right? And they were like, hey, we're going to do it in Britain. We're going to have British Mountain Dew. It was awful. It's not the same. We've only got one mountain, Tom,
3: for a start. Ben Nevis. So people don't understand the concept of Mountain Dew in this country. But, yeah, it never really took off. And I think... Even though no. there is some intersectionality between sweets and snacks when it comes to the British and America and our American relatives, I feel like there's certain things that just don't cross over. Like, for example, Americans are never going to get Vimto. They're not going to get right beaner. And it's sad yeah. to say, because how can you not get right beaner? But those are the facts. They don't get right beaner. They don't understand how Dandelion and Burdock works. And why that's so delicious? They got their yeah, own true. things. They got they got their Mountain Dews. They've got uh, Mister Pib. That's a thing as well.
2: What? What's yeah, that?
3: A, I think it's like a off. It's like one of those uh, Doctor Pepper derivatives.
2: Right. Yeah. 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 yeah so it's like Mister that. But I mean, can you trust a nation that eats Hershey's chocolate? No, you can't.
3: You can't. You really can't. (laughs) And it's really weird as well. So and anyone who doesn't know, like if you've ever eaten Hershey's, you may have been able to enjoy it and found one to two Hershey Kisses quite palatable. That's probably because you either have no sense of smell or you put it straight (laughs) in your mouth while you were drunk. Because everyone knows that Hershey's chocolate smell like vomit. And the reason for that, Tom, is because they all contain an anti-melting agent. No, that's that's the, that's why it stinks of vomit and smells like the end of a good night is the, is because uh, they use an anti-melting agent within the Hershey's kisses so that they maintain their shape of being like little drops.
2: You've cracked the system.
3: This is it, man. I don't right. just. You know, I study this stuff. I study this stuff. I, I got to put, I got, I got look at what I put in my body because, you know, I was a big milkshake fan. Now I'm lactose intolerant. I'm having to rebuild my life one day at a time and find alternatives yeah. to satisfy my sugar and my milk fix. People are always like, hey, Dane, how come you're not smiling in your photos? You're such a funny comedian. This is a face that grew up without ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mate, that's, that's what killer. happened.
2: To be fair, though, Outpro Milk is okay. It's, uh, see? It's okay. It's all right. <laughs>
3: I know, but it's, it isn't, it's like almond milk though, right? Or is it soy, soy milk? Almond milk, um,
2: We've we, listen, we've got some almond milk downstairs right now, I got the chocolate almond milk and actually, it's passable.
3: I mean, you can, you, can hear it in your, you can hear it in your own sentence, it's passable. This is what we are forced <laughs> to deal with as a lactose intolerant, it's passable. This is the thing with me, is like, I would love to use coconut milk for a milkshake. I'd love to use Alpro, but then it stops being a strawberry milkshake then, then it's a strawberry and coconut milkshake or a strawberry and yeah. almond milkshake. <laughs> And then I become some kind of fucking hipster and I'm not snowing iron. I am. I'm a guy like everybody else. I'm, I'm down with the Holy Trinity, you know, strawberry, vanilla, chocolate, and honorable mention Amen. to banana, right? But sure. now the world's crazy. And, and now I've got to look at the fact that by some miracle, we now have Shake Shack in the UK, and I Oof. can't have the one thing that counts, the fucking shakes. And they do great with <laughs> but- the shakes at Shake Shack. They got all the different shakes. At Christmas time, they did like a cranberry shake. They do shakes for like every month, they do a different shake. And I can just be like, yeah. must be nice.
2: Lemonade please. <laughs> 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 yeah, but they, they, when you add the shakes to a Five Guys or when you add a shake to a Shake Shack, that order goes from already beyond expensive to sell your liver on the black market levels.
3: This is very true, to be fair. I mean, they, yeah, these places are not cheap. Like, Five Guys, when you start man. getting into your toppings, it's not cheap. I mean, in Five Guys' defense, when you do ask for fries, they will give you the equivalent of seven potatoes in a bag. But
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
3: <laughs> there's way too many potatoes. Like, it's almost as if, like, there's so much potatoes in an order of regular fries at Five Guys. It's like, it might as well be called Go Fuck Yourself Island. It might as well. <laughs> <laughs> and a cup of Go Fuck Yourself Island. That's how much potatoes they use. There's so yeah. many used. And then they give away these like, ele- they give you like peanuts as well for free. As if you're some kind of elephant and it's like are you giving these away because you're called five guys because that's the size that somebody would become if they keep eating this <laughs> stuff? if so that's fine but just let me know i'm okay start. with it how are you an in and out burger
2: <sighs> i've only been once and i wasn't blown away everyone talks about it everyone as soon as you get off that flight to la you need to go to your in and out burger yeah, and i, I went too. and it was absolutely passable is how i would say yeah, It was cool. i think, five I think it was guys, cool. I, i think no, no, five no, no, guys no. beats it i think shake shack beats it
3: easy every Ooh. day of the week do you know what I'm, i hate that shout on shake shack yeah five guys in terms of burger options are available like for me in and out burger the, the idea is that they got a few kind of like of their you can get like secret the secret passwords and it's like cheat codes to get special kind of burgers and stuff oh is and it i'm right? like why do i need to do this i just want a burger but yeah they, they got secret things where you can ask for one where it's like use a particular type of relish or type of pickles or if it's a triple stack And I'm just like I think for In-N-Out Burger And for most of the chain restaurants in LA My enjoyment of them Is always going to be limited By their serious Serious homeless problem So It's really yeah, hard true. To like In-N-Out Burger When people are like Please I am starving And I'm like There really shouldn't be women In their 20s Being homeless in California I like In-N-Out Burger I guess because it reminds me To uh, pay it forward So if I'm grabbing a burger i got to grab one For somebody else too So
2: True I once bought a McDonald's For a homeless guy In Houston Station Mm-hmm. Um, I used to get the train from U Station every single morning and I bought a McDonald's for a guy. And he said he would rather have had Coke than the coffee I bought him. And I thought that was quite picky.
3: It's picky, but... It's he, quite picky. It, it can be picky, but he, he wanted like a, a Coca-Cola or actual Coke, Kane. <laughs> yeah, I think he meant crack. Okay, because to be fair, if I'm homeless, I'd probably take crack over a cup of coffee too. Yeah, so, that's and, true. You know, there's that level of pep that an espresso will give you but when you're trying to do what you need to stay survive on the streets, you probably need a little bit yeah. more than maybe a, a, a double shot of espresso. So, uh, yeah, I mean, even that so-
2: Starbucks triple is not the same <laughs> as the rush of mainline crack, is it? Well, yeah, nowhere near the same.
3: I mean, I don't really partake of Starbucks. Some people might be able to update you, like, you know, I've seen a lot of women do really enjoy pumpkin spice lattes. So maybe the combination yeah. of those ingredients does produce the same effects. As like you know, <laughs> the purest, the finest Colombian marching powder. So I can yeah. tell you, I've, I've had something similar though. I, I um, I uh, offered a homeless man a drink, and he'd said he was teetotal, and I had to admire it really. You what offered him
2: that? a boozy drink, a boozy beer.
3: Yeah, I offered him a boozy No, I, I think it was a boozy beer, and I also had a bottle of blueberry sake because I think I came from a Korean restaurant, and wow. uh, he said he was teetotal. And to be honest, you know, I can't be mad at that. And I feel like even though it does seem picky, we, we shouldn't move away from not expecting people who are homeless to not have dietary requirements. That's who, true. Who know how they got there? They and, you know, they could be like, you know, I mean, I'm already trying to subsist on a diet of whatever's in a bin, as well as, like, yeah. you know, processing drugs and stuff. So if someone says to me, mm. I'm trying to cut down on the red meat, then I've got to respect it, really. But though, that um, being said, I would in fact, I'm even going to make it a point on this podcast now that I don't ever want to get involved in politics, but I would like to pass a law like they have in France, where all restaurants... Uh, have to donate their leftover or wasted food to food banks or to the less fortunate. Wow, is that a law in France? I think, yeah, it's a law in France. They can't throw food away. They have to kind of feed people and stuff as well because, you know, um, they managed to storm their Bastille. So I think in a country like ours where there are more food banks than there are junk food establishments within the country, I think it should be a legal obligation for instead of the metric tons of food to be thrown away, that they should be provided for the less fortunate. And then at least our man there, he's kind of like, I'm really going for coffee, man. I'd rather have a Coke. Then you can be like, all right, what do you want? Diet, vanilla, cherry, zero. I got you. And then he's got no choice.
2: Um, I want, I feel like we've got so into food, which is amazing. So we never end up talking about food on this podcast, which is always a real shame. But I want to I talk about you for a minute. And I want to talk about your life and starting in comedy and growing up in South London, born and bred, right? Yep. yep. And, uh, How was that? How was growing up in The Big Smoke?
3: It's been, I think The Big Smoke, I think it's been, it was a very rewarding experience so far as being a mosaic of uh, different cultures and experiences and, I think that is always valuable just for any person to be able to take in uh, as much as they can, uh, I suppose, socially uh, outside of their own uh, echo chambers, comfort zones, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So that was really good. Um, obviously, being in a industrialized metropolis, there are dangers. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I suppose. but I mean, I was very fortunate in the upbringing I had that I wasn't really exposed to too much danger growing up. And really, a lot of the time it would come down to me making a choice, whether it's like go with the crowd and maybe find yourself in a compromising position or try and keep it straight and narrow. Uh, straight and narrow. I think I kind of found somewhere between that, as comedians tend to do, is they maybe look at things from the opposite side and always try and think outside of the box. And uh, yeah, I've always wanted to be somebody where I'm like, you know, I do act locally as I did growing up, and uh, but at the same time, always thinking globally. So I've always tried to kind of, as while well being uh, growing up in uh, South London, particularly in the Blue Borough blue borough living was cool but always looking to blue skies and being able to travel what's that
2: what's blue borough living i so don't know blue that.
3: borough living is a there's a there's a film called blue story uh which right. can kind of depict what it was like growing up here but um yeah it was an interesting place like lucian borough is uh based in southeast london a lot of luminaries from here maybe too many to mention but yeah growing up here uh postcode wise we border a, a uh borough which is like peckham and camberwell and uh, yeah, near, next to Lambeth, which is like Brixton, Stockwell. But postcode wise, yeah. yeah, we were just right in the middle of all of these other places, and uh, yeah, everyone hated us. So <laughs> that was uh, quite a thorny experience growing up. But yeah, I kind of made my way around it, and um, I'd say I, I enjoyed my childhood, man. I think um, as I'm a lot older now and I have more time to kind of reflect on it, for the most part, it was pretty good. I think for me, growing up, I would say the most difficult thing about growing up. And I think it's for all people, especially when they reach adolescence, is you know this point in which our lives where we tend to contextualize our lives along the lines of what culture we belong to, what race or what gender, or sexual orientation, and you mean know, I was fine. I, I I never felt adverse to speaking to people from other groups or other minority groups, but I feel my biggest existential crisis growing up as a teenager was kind of worrying what people thought about me, or or more about being what I thought people wanted me to be and that was kind of like you know there's a lot of cultural uh influence in terms of like you know you wanted to like i said wanted to be a good son and you know be a good example uh, to my community and stuff as well but i think i learned over time that you know that doesn't necessarily mean you have to follow what people tell you or to adhere to the status quo um so that was kind of the biggest lesson for me was rather really even more about being who i wanted to be rather than what i thought i should be what
2: was the status quo like what was the status quo well, i think it, would,
3: it kind you? of varied i think i think the main part is for most people for the community i grew up in i think most younger kids would have had aspirations to be working in uh, entertainment or the athletic effect industry so it was either you'd be a footballer or a musician or a presenter or an actor and funnily enough i kind of had the whole disposition of do you know those uh conservative evangelical preachers who were like, gay marriage is wrong. And then you find that they got a boyfriend for like seven years. <laughs> yeah. like, I was one of those guys who was like, we can't all be entertainers. We can't all be entertainers. Some of us have to walk in the, in the boardrooms and blah blah, 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 And we can't blah, 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 blah. And I was, you know, like, you know, I would have, it was Chuka Umina before. It was Chuka Umina. I was like in a suit being like, no, God. Blah, 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 blah. But inside, I was kind of like, I fucking love comedy. I love jokes and having fun. It's my a, it's my crutch. I use it for everything.
2: So, yeah. Can I talk about uh, comedy as a crutch? Because I find that very interesting. A lot of comedians, did you joke about things that maybe inside you really wanted? So, like, if there was a girl you really fancy, you just sort of joke about the idea about fancying them so you wouldn't hurt yourself if you didn't get what you wanted i that definitely rings true with me
3: i think partially but i think what i would do more is that i would try to re- endear myself to somebody i liked by doing comedy rather than openly expressing any romantic intentions which yeah. is good because people laugh but it means that people don't take your advances seriously so when i would like make jokes with people like they're so funny and then i'd be like actually like it she'd be like taking a piss so i be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worked too well, if nothing else. <laughs> um, and, I, and also, I realised that like comedy can make some people find it very intimidating. And I think again, because of the fact that like, as an adolescent, when you're trying to grow into adulthood, there is a large basis for comparison and stuff. And I think the way some people deal with that is by you know ridiculing one another or you know just basically exhibiting all the behaviour you see on social media today. Uh, hashtag yeah. be kind.
2: What was your mum like? Because I've got a few mates who have Jamaican mothers mm-hmm. and damn, they are strict, man. Yeah, you think they Jamaicans are strict?
3: Are... Grenadians are even worse. Let me explain. <laughs> so just to give you an idea. So the way the West Indies works, I would say culturally, is that Jamaica is like London yeah. and the rest of the Caribbean are like home counties. Right, okay. So there is like a certain level of, it's maybe not as industrialised, but there's a bit more of a quasi-conservative, almost kind of victorian level of like conservatism that you get on the smaller islands so yeah, yeah yeah. my mum, like i think i've seen my mum drink f- 10 times in my life and i'm sure like there's been maybe half of his maybe glasses of champagne off at a wedding and the other half have been like glass of port at christmas uh um, yeah. neither of my parents smoke um they rarely swear i don't think I've, my dad has ever missed a day of work in his entire life um, yes. Like my parents do not even steal, they won't even, they won't even chip there. The most, the most they've ever done was have a chipped cable box and that's the most they've ever done. But like, <laughs> they are, they're, they're. my parents are really, really straight laced. They're so straight laced. It's kind of like, if I was to bring home like a, someone else's wallet and stuff with cash, they'd be like, take it to the fucking police station.
2: Yeah. That's
3: what they're like, it's been, you know, so every child kind of has like a rebellious phase where like, yeah, now's the time to, so my parents are like, you leave this house, you're home at midnight. And if you don't like it, don't bother coming to this house again. Wow. So uh, I I would say it it wasn't a massively strict upbringing because they're quite progressive in their beliefs and ideals. Like I said, my mum was always open to me having new experiences and meeting people from very different backgrounds. But so far as how I conducted myself, my goodness. Like you see these, I got these tattoos, right? Because my mother now, uh, her her eyesight is kind of doing anything in old age. So I waited that long to get tattoos. (laughs) I didn't get my earpiece until I was 21 to give you an idea of how straight-laced my parents are.
2: Because they, they would have gone mental.
3: I mean, yeah, I mean, they would have gone mental, but I mean, they wouldn't have thrown me out, but they would have kind of been like, you're supposed to be yourself in a position for a good job and you know, you have to be yeah. a certain way and carry yourself a certain way. So like, even like as a Londoner where I might just flippantly say like, oh, can I get a glass of water? My mum and my aunt would be like, what did you just say? Listen, we don't talk like the streets in this house Dane, And that becomes a lecture over me just saying water. Fine, wow. And then they'll like, what do you mean, water? So it's, yeah, I've, I'm, I've constantly been, like, pulled up on enunciation. Another example of uh, my family is, someone asked for a cup of tea. A cup of tea is a cup of tea. If you show up in a mug, take it back. No way. Take it back. If I bring a wow. mug of tea for any of my mother or any of her aunts, they'd be like, I'm sorry, am I wallpapering your fucking room? I would like a cup of tea, please. So that has to come with a cup, with a saucer. A saucer? Absolutely. Or don't bother. Yeah. No, I, I come. I come from. The, I come from that part of the Caribbean community where it's like people got houses with rooms where like, well, it's in this room. You don't go in that room. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, I had. I had that kind of background, but yeah. Very like my kind of like I said, my parents. If I if I was like you know like when kids maybe get involved in like petty theft or stuff like that, if, I, if I if I if I got done for shoplifting. I would tell the people that caught me, I'll just do the time because I'm not going home. Yeah, <laughs> this is way better than telling mom. Easily. I'd e- I would easily go to youth offenders, then go home and tell my mom I'm a thief. <laughs> easily. <laughs> Easy. It would be a much easier ride. I'm telling you.
2: <laughs> yeah. I get that. Um. I want to talk. I do want to talk about before comedy as well. Before I like delve into like the start of your career, because you had some quote-unquote normal jobs for a while, right? You yeah, worked yeah. at I think my favourite website, Auto Trader. <laughs> is that your favourite website? My God, there's two websites I love: Rightmove and Auto Trader. What nice. could I get today on Auto Trader? Auto Trader is a great website. I bloody love that.
3: It's a, it's a it's a good it's a good website. the The corporate culture at the time not so much for me. Um, <laughs> not so much, um, but yeah, I, I, had, I had a couple of normal jobs. Again, I don't regret having normal jobs. I think again, it's been one of the most beneficial parts of my career because I know a lot of my contemporaries and peers would have maybe left university or you know left school or done started comedy while they were in school. And I think sometimes when you've come from a particular artistic background, especially in observ- when it comes to observational comedy, a large part of what we do uh, and the way you're prosperous in comedy is through relativity. Like, you know, people talk about, you know, being the comedians, comedian or being every man or every woman comedian. Yeah. And I think um, it can be very hard for you to continue to capture that very well if you haven't spent a lot of time on the other side of the microphone. So, yeah, I've had a, I've had a few jobs. So when I graduated from university, I worked in a call center I worked for Churchill Insurance. Then I used to work for a, a company called Haymarket, which does business publications, like really exciting things like town planning and regeneration and renewal. And don't yeah, I mean, hot stuff. Some people like you could have went <laughs> to FHM or Loaded. I was like, no, no. Here's where my love is, town planning. <laughs> so I did that for a year or so. Then I worked for a job board. I worked for Total Jobs. That was a fu- that was actually a fun place to work, but not much in the way of employment or a job because I mean, how can I put this? Irrespective of the weather outside, it was always snowing so this is oh, kind of like, really? this is like early this is like around 2000 and i want to say 2007 where you know just before the so just around the time of the credit crunch just for the credit crunch where anybody who worked in the city would know that at one point the price of cocaine went down and the quality of cocaine apparently went up and uh right. yeah, for most young professionals that were living or working in the city there's a reason why 90 percent of most notes in circulation have traces of cocaine because my goodness yeah it was frothing out there. And I don't begrudge anybody working there because, do you know, it's a funny thing you mentioned a homeless man before. There is a very thin line in the emotional disposition of a salesperson and a homeless person because essentially your life is about the pitch. Yeah. You saying, hi, I'm calling from this company. I want to find out more about your needs when it comes to like posting recruitment. It's no different to ladies and gentlemen, sorry for disturbing you on your way home because you've got to repeat that pitch and, you yeah. know, gain the toe, use the correct tone and stuff in order to kind of gain empathy with your uh, potential customer and then the, yeah rinse and repeat i
2: know. was so surprised how the idea of being a salesman right and the idea of like door-to-door sales and like cold calling i was surprised after i left uni how high the idea of cold calling goes like my mate worked in a job where he would cold call like CEOs and be like, I got a CEO job for you or like cold call pilots and be like, I've got a pilot job for you. And that is on the phone all day, every day. And my mate had just left a really good uni, really great degree so and you strange. are cold calling cold people calling. all day.
3: And, and, they, and they'll say stuff to you like, you've got to be at your desk at
2: 8.45 on Monday to start
3: calling people at nine. And it's like that idea, there's just no human nuance to that. Like, because even if you are a CEO, you come in on a, on a Monday morning at nine o'clock. The last thing you want is someone calling you being like, can I speak to you about your advertising, Reggie? Like, get the fuck yeah. off my phone. Can I get some coffee first, please? Or some crack yeah. before I start this <laughs> can I get my? Can I just get my crack, please? Let's go. <laughs> Secretary, where's my crack? Like, you know. So I feel like kind of like the whole sales thing, it, it, it just hit me where I was kind of like, I don't really see what longevity can possibly be in this thing because uh, to anybody working in sales and not that I'm judging you for solidarity and I respect what you do, but just remember that there is no, there are no statues of any salesmen that sit in any office. No one's ever going to yeah. be like, well, many years ago, our friend Edward here hit the target of 70k, and then we retired. What a legend! He was so cool, and we retired his tie. Yeah, he was a <laughs> legend. No one's ever going to be like, right, guys, get on these phones, and remember, we're doing this for Edward. All right, that's never <laughs> happened. So, yeah, your only reward for hitting that target is for is that they'll ask you to do it again next year
2: with a slightly increased, incrementally increased target. So. So hold yeah. on, hold on. When you worked in this sales place, people were doing cocaine in the day, all day. Sometimes. Wow. This, I mean, and I can't stress enough. These are good people. I like these
3: people. Yeah, no, no, as of course, people. of course. These, these are good people. But uh, yeah, I think, as I said, I feel like when you're doing something as repetitive as getting on the phone and doing the same repetitive monotonous thing, the tedium after a, a, a while can just destroy you. So people need to have a drink to pick them up at lunchtime or have a little bump to keep them going if you do well for a lot of people like doing sales can be very lucrative and in some ways can be very easy money and that can be very addictive but i think you do need the drugs as well in order to kind of keep you going you know um you could look at them as performance enhancing drugs sure yeah that way yeah so that's how people got through it but for me it was kind of like i just don't understand why you'd commit your mind and body this much to a, a job like this I watch people get promoted from my department into like another department and they be like, things have changed now now I'm like a senior manager. And it's like, don't look like it's changed. You're still on the phones, making phone calls, just that the the patch that you're working on has changed somewhat. So, you know, yeah. and, you, and then you start to see how like, just the mindset of somebody that's a part of the system, how they have to work and like I said, people are having to use some kind of drug or recreational drug in order for them to relieve the tedium. And then also on everyone's screensaver, you can work out what their motivation is and what's pushing them to stay on the hamster wheel. So. It'd either be somebody who yeah. would have a screensaver of their wedding or, you know, one of their kids or their family or the last holiday they went on with their partner. And I I was just kind of like, oh, I just don't want to have to be put myself in a position whereby I lose the best part of my vitality and intelligence and, you know, potential like professional ingenuity, you know, on a phone my whole life just because, you know, I've, I've got somebody pregnant.
2: That's such a sad idea that, you would take drugs and be on the phone. And then that that idea, that image of your screensaver being what you actually want from this. It's yeah. quite poignant, isn't it?
3: Yeah, having to do that for like your kid and stuff. And and it's sad because it's it's, it's so it's noble and it's respectable. And it's something I totally of understand. Course. And definitely the sentiment I had prior to like, actually taking a step of, you know, doing comedy. But I think, even then there's the longevity in that as well because you know if 42% of marriages end in divorce how much can you invest in that as an idea to keep you doing this or you know one day your children will be of an age where they have their own independence their own ideas and dreams and I imagine most people when they look at their kids they want the best for their children and you know what I guess there was one point where I'm kind of like at what point does a parent have to because always, there's always that we talk to kids about kids having to talk where it's to talk about you know if you're a black or brown kid understanding that racism exists or to talk about you know your sexuality or even to talk about you know understanding and taking ownership of your sexuality and understanding how consent works and but i think the another conversation we need to have is about you know what people want to do and what they want to be because even now i watch friends and peers and they're like my kid's first day at school it's my kid's first day at secondary school i'm so proud and i'm like yeah but at what point are you gonna have the conversation with your child whether you either tell them to encourage them to continue to pursue their creative aspirations Or is there a point at which you told them, I mean, it's all fun to have dreams, son or daughter or non-binary child of mine, but you have to kind of make a decision at what point you're going to fit into the system because we all have to be a part of it. And, you know, I I don't begrudge my parents. They could only pass on the knowledge they knew. And especially for my parents coming here in the 60s, just being able to have regular work and regular income was a massive exponential leap compared to their own predecessors. So, you know, my parents, their main aspiration for me was just they wanted to be a professional and. Just have a good job and have a good education, and you know, just just play play the game by the rules. And I and, and yeah. uh, you know, my parents, you know, like I said they are very straight laced. Their whole ethos is don't lie, cheat, or steal. So when you go into a job like sales, it doesn't work. It doesn't work at yeah. all. Yeah, because you know, yeah, sales is about lying and blagging people. And even then, when, when that used to happen, I'd be like, I suppose you can kind of blag and embellish a bit, but again, it's about longevity. Because if I I can lie to somebody in order to push them getting a sale. But then that means I've only got 28 days to enjoy that because if I've screwed them over that time, they're not going to come back to me for a second time. But it's going to be very difficult sentiments to explain to people uh, who are working towards a target. And then when you look at a larger macro social scale, like how, when people have to work and contextualise their work through capitalism, you see how shit falls apart. Like, for example, even police officers, because uh, police officers, all they have what are called people call KPIs and key performance indicators where, you know, if people don't know, police are targeted on the amount of arrests they make, the amount of, you know, charges that happen. And when your livelihood is being measured by that, then what people will do, like they do in sales, is that they will manipulate and they will juke the stats in order for them to satisfy these said key performance indicators, which is why it's mm-hmm. like, the police have to make a certain amount of arrests. Therefore, that results in people that look like me being seven times more likely to be stopped and searched. Yeah. Not just because of that, an unconscious racial bias, but this police officers probably rationalize himself, I need to get my numbers in. And this is a part of the country where my actions won't be scrutinized politically. So i will go get my numbers up. They've been incentivized work. in the wrong way. In the wrong way, in the same way, like social workers have to complete a number of um, house visits all the time. But we all know, oh, oh,
2: oh. The Nando's. Nando's time. Nando. Please hold the oh. lancet. <laughs> yes, you go. Oh, look at that town's
3: beginning Also, um, while I'm because going back to food I just want to again, again educate as well as entertain Yeah Condiments are your friends, ladies and gentlemen And members of the non-binary community Condiments are your friends Amen So I've got uh, the garlic sauce as well
2: Oh wow, what a oh, I'm jealous man. The idea of the podcast was supposed to be ie and the guest eat, but because of doing it social distance, it was too confusing for me to get food as well. So it ends up being like a weird video where I just watch you eat.
3: That's okay. I'm going to that make it as tantalizing as possible.
2: So Dane talk us through it. You got the chicken pitta with Both. medium with the wings on the side.
3: Chicken pizza medium with the wings on the side. Uh, and also the Macho Peas, just to get my green stuff in. have got Abbey yes. and and uh, Macho Peas. They're pretty nice as far as peas go. They are. I've never been a mushy peas person, but Macho Peas, definitely all day, every day.
2: You throw that mint in there and it just really it's works. Good. And now
3: extra hot um, things. Oh, goodness me. These smell volcanic.
2: Are you going to try one?
3: I'm going to try one, Tom. Yeah. But, you know, if anything happens to me, it happened on your podcast, buddy.
2: Yeah. Send me the voice note.
3: Okay. Yeah, they're pretty hot.
2: Yeah, they're hot, man, aren't Ooh. they? Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, That's my also my secret Caribbean shame that I was never particularly good with spicy food. I've got better as I've got older. Me too, me too. I actually yeah. had a friend of mine who's also a fellow comedian. His name is Nabil Abdul Rashid and he's a big cooking and food fan. And he introduced me to Nigerian food at a lovely restaurant in uh, Norbury. And basically I had like a tasting menu where I was sweating profusely through the entire sitting. <laughs> and the food was great, but I was dripping with sweat. And I think- Yeah, it's hot. I don't know what the culinary equivalent is of a hymen, but he removed (laughs) my mouth hymen. Sure. yeah, yeah, my mouth hymen's gone now, so I can handle spicy food to an extent.
2: Now we're here, this does bring us to the food section of the podcast, which we added this section into the podcast because so many other guests, we didn't even touch on food, where it doesn't really feel like me and you've left food for the whole chat, which is good, but I want to ask you the questions anyway. (laughs) section. Food! So, welcome to the food section. Question one is, you're in jail for a crime we can't talk about. And unfortunately, Dane, it's it's the old death penalty for you, my man. So, you've been served a last meal. Starter, main dessert, what you have him Alright, now, I'm going to
3: give you both the real and the comedy answer because, obviously as a comedian, I think about this regularly. Yeah. So... When the governor comes down that green mountain, he's like, "Well, well, well, how bad taste." Start it. What's your entree? What's your main course? And what's your dessert? I'll say it for. Uh, I think for a start, I'll start with your wife's pussy. Then for a main course, will be your grandmother's, and then I think I'll finish with your mama, cause she's the sweetest. <laughs>
2: Take me to the chair!
3: <laughs> and then...
2: We've just brought the death earlier. It's no longer 1am. <laughs> yeah. It's now. Bring the chair in his sail! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Is it his sail? Bring it in <laughs> his cell. <laughs> <sail. laughs>
3: you gonna die, boy! Now, before I taste this pussy, boy, Yeah, so that's what I would <laughs> My answer would be, just due to the penal Industrial Complex being very, very unjust. But my real answer would be, I think my starter would be... A nice dim sum platter from Hakkasan, which I uh, was one of the perks Ooh. of working at Trader. I used to go to a lot of client dinners. And uh, yeah, I think I definitely... If I'd say one good takeaway I got from working at Trader was a different sophistication to my palate. Uh, so I was mm-hmm. very privileged to go to a number of very nice restaurants. And uh, I make it a point of principle now to share those experiences with people that I actually like instead of people I work with. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, the dim sum platter from Hakkasan is my favourite, so that would be a nice starter. I think main course would be my last meal so it'll be a home cooked one my mum make me Sunday dinner nice so because yeah I think that'd be the last time and uh, for dessert yeah. I would have a big old super lactose full strawberry milkshake
2: yeah you, yeah if, if you had it late enough you'd die before the effects kicked in I suppose oh
3: no what I want to happen is that for me to die uh, that, what I'm doing is making myself into a suicide bomb <laughs> yeah so I'd be like put me in the chair put me in the chair backwards <laughs> <And> then... <laughs> And any the gallery would then? just get spread. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, any last <laughs> words, Dane? I'd be like, yeah, eat shit, y'all. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's how we'd go out. That'd
2: that go would be a good way to go out.
3: So, and, I, and I'm hoping that that experience would be so harrowing for the people that came to witness my execution that they would do away with the death penalty. And then all these Texan yeah. conservative people would be like, why are we doing the white criminals have to be punished? And then people would be like, you weren't bad. <laughs> and then I'd show them the video. And it'd be people would be like, uh, to heaven he got, oh my, <laughs> my face is covered in duty. I imagine like Texans would be like duty
2: instead of shit. Yeah, so. they would. Yeah, they would say that. There's yeah. duty
3: in my coffee. It's <laughs> duty all over my biscuits. There's duty in my Mountain Dew. Now it's Mountain doodoo <laughs> it's, I
2: imagine it would go down. So no, it's it's go down.
3: I only thought about it a little bit, right? So you know, don't.
2: Need yeah. Too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit. Um, good answer though. That was a good answer. Favorite restaurant in London? Oh, I think my favorite restaurant in London would be it would be Hakasan. Yeah. Nice. That's Which
3: a good one. It makes me sound like a pretentious dickhead, but the food is good, and also they got one of the best cocktail bars in London. So yeah, Hackensack definitely a favourite of mine. Um, Gets
2: real vibey in there as well. After a while,
3: it really, it's really, it's a really nice vibe, man. And again, it's like you know, I always, um, it's it's just an ex- dining experience I want to share with people close to me as well. And you know, uh, I've got friends who who can like, hey, I can't use chopsticks. And I'm like, I don't care, I'm paying for it. Fork, please. So <laughs> you know, although, but I mean, I've, I'm pretty, I'm pretty. Pretty good with chopsticks. Pretty nifty with that. Yeah, I could can, I can even eat like rice with it. So, you know, wow. With most people with chopsticks, you start off with noodles and like bits yeah. of meat, but I've been able to graduate to noodles and sushi. Pretty good, and yeah, pretty good with the rice as well.
2: And final question in the food section is, you are on the M1, uh, you're pulling over. Um, what's your meal deal of choice? Um, I would
3: ideally like to go uh, to I want to say it's the Beaconsfield uh, services sure because think they've got the KFC the McDonald's and they've got like the uh, the Mexicana spot as well and I think they've got like a salad a salad bar and the yeah. Krispy Kreme like this place is crazy but so that might be the place I'd go and I might go for like and then because there's like a KFC and a McDonald's across from each other that's when Dane gets crazy get myself yeah. some hot wings and get some McDonald's fries because of all of the the holy trinity I believe that McDonald's still do the best fries
2: amen I watched a documentary once on the KFC fry getting reinvented it was a channel 5 thing and they were like you know we're, we're <laughs> gonna
3: <laughs> I can imagine how this went <laughs>
2: And they were like, um, we're gonna do the skin on fries now. We're really reinventing the fries thing. We're gonna do the skin on now. It's gonna make the fries better. I went to KFC and had the skin on fries. They were still shit. They haven't, they just can't do it. They've got to take the time to focus
3: on it. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. Like KFC's fries, and I've got to say it, they're really known better than kebab shop fries. And that's sad for a global conglomerate to not be able to be better than, you know, kebabish in hither green, It's very, (laughs) very sad. It doesn't look. I think KFC. Here's what you do: take your coating, your 11 herbs and spices, you turn that into an equivalent of peri peri salt. Just make your regular fries, buy regular like regular pre cooked shoestring fries or pre cut fries, skin on skin off. No one cares. When you fry fries, they have their own skin anyway. You dust that with a little bit of your 11 herbs and spices. That's your niche right because I like that uh, or maybe have an alternative to fry, different types of fries sweet potato cassava yeah. like the fry yeah. game has expanded considerably over the years you don't have to keep restricting yourself to regular potato uh,
2: dane i'm not just saying this because you're here right now but we've done an hour and 20 and i could chat to you all night i've over here you you can't see this and podcast listeners this is to the right of me i got a list of questions right i normally like like to get some questions for the guest i've not asked any of them like, this has been an utter joy in terms of conversation. It's been but great, man. Uh, listen, this, this is very, been... it's the least I could do. I mean, Tom, you bought me Nando's, man. I grew up with
3: people that never did that for me, you know? <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something, Tom. I'm going to tell you something. The day that that black card comes through my door, I'm going to call you first. Yes, thank you. I'm going to call you first, buddy. And, and you know, why? I say, it doesn't exist. Wink, wink. But if it did exist
2: and I got yeah. that black card, I'm going to give you a call, buddy. Yeah, you shouldn't talk about the black card because if you talk about it, you won't get it. But I'm just going to say Nando's, 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 and there's a bit of free press for you. It's so nice. <laughs> it's, hey, oh. I'm Tom Green, and I bloody love Nando's. Tom Green, I love that you love Nando's
3: almost as much as I, Dane Baptiste, comedian and frequent appearer on BBC, also loves Nando's. Mm. Yeah. I'll I'm, just send I'm them really that. glad I'm on that, that to to podcast, the... which has a massive reach and an enormous diverse demographic, who hopefully. Uh, you know th- through your narrative we'll also maybe enjoy sure. nando's maybe. you know
2: we didn't get we didn't get top 20 on itunes for nothing and there you go okay I mean, you know All if good. i
3: was if i was a large international conglomerate that sold grilled poultry you know uh, semi-fast food i'd want i'd want a podcast that's in the top 20 of itunes to help me
2: promote mm. something benevolently you know what if nando's wanted to we could change the whole format and only order off the nando's menu if they wanted a full series sponsor Anyway, I think it's any it. man we've can. We said it. it.
3: Nando's can or Tom Green nan?
2: Yeah, does can. Yeah. No, yeah, Nose yeah, yeah. can.
3: Yeah. Um on the, on the le- on the level of spiciness, this podcast is definitely extra hot.
2: Cut throw to adverts. <laughs> that's that's where you go <laughs> right there. Um Dane, before you go, there is one topic that I really wanted to talk to you about, and you've been really vocal about it, and I really want to get your insight on it. And that is comedy in the UK as a black gentleman yourself, right? Like I couldn't believe it was 2014 until uh, a black person had been nominated for an award. What the f-?
3: Yeah, definitely. What the f- Indeed. I mean, this is, this is uh, and by that token, that, that's not to s- assume. That you know, I have been the best person and the most eligible because a lot of my predecessors are amazing, and uh, I've continued to see them working in Edinburgh. And um, and that being said, by by no means do I reject the uh, plaudits and I'm very happy for my nomination and uh, being the first recipient in Edinburgh's entire history is an amazing honour. But yeah, it's crazy. I think it's like when you look at Forbes list and you consider when most people think about stand up and the luminaries and the people that have influenced stand up and some of the bigger icons, it'd be weird that you would include any black faces and. You know i think there is a real it's really sad because there's a real sociological impact of that fact that as i said comedy is always an effective icebreaker and rapport builder with all people and i think one of the ways we always try and deconstruct any kind of tension between groups is um even to an extent when we have like stereotypes and people cite those it is an attempt of using comedy for people to kind of process you know interaction with other groups but i found you know especially growing up in south East London as a black british male the way you know i grew up in the early noughties where following like the kind of breakup of Yugoslavia, had a large influx of Albanian and Kosovans, uh, you know, uh, during a Somalian civil war, a lot of Somalians moving into South London and stuff as well. And, you know, you'd meet guys at football and you exchange to banter. And this is how we come to slowly learn about one another's cultures. And I think, mm. you know, we live in a country where, you know, there's no, it's no secret, it's no issue. The fact that we live in a predominantly white country um, where there are some people who seldom see people of the other races. The thing about that is, then they have to kind of subsist on what they see on mainstream media to form their perception of other groups. And if you only see people in a capacity where they're either singing and dancing or rapping or playing football... When we play, you know, playing football and having banter with guys from different groups is always a very effective way of learning about other cultures in very very incremental ways. But, you know, using the comedy, then we're all accepting of each other and finding a, you know, finding a commonality through making jokes has always been an effective way of getting to know one another. And um, I think it's an issue because in you know, Britain is a predominantly white country and even though we do have metropolises which are quite diverse, there are some parts of the country where people seldom see anyone of a different colour unless they are appearing on the football team they support or they see them on TV. And I think the problem with that is that if you only see people in a capacity where they're running and jumping or, you know, they're dancing and singing, it's very little space for them to actually have a narrative and for them to describe their journey and therefore have that relativity to understand them. Um and then the only time we tend to discuss race in the UK tends to be from a point of contention and anger and you know if you as, as a comedian and trying to place myself in other people's shoes if i am a white person living in you know bumfuck nowhere upon avon and the only time i see black people on tv they're pissed off before i even know who they are and also the only time i hear them talking about things is with regards to race obviously it's going to become a learned behavior that the only time i can speak to a black person is if i'm referencing their race as well so i've had this very awkward conversation with people that are just trying so hard to rapport build or break the ice and they'll be like oh hi uh that was a really good set uh, uh you know uh, i work with a guy called byron from jamaica he works on my building site and it's like people feel they have to qualify yeah. whatever aspect of their life involves some in blackness before they can begin a conversation which is not what you need to do people we can talk about the weather too like the rain falls on my head the same way it falls on yours and you know yeah people bridge people talk about the weather all the fucking time so you can do the same so it's a shame because i believe comedy is one of the most effective discursive tools we have as people to kind of break down walls and learn a lot more about one another and learn about different perspectives because then at least with comedy, like as a black British person, I have autonomy over my own voice. I can talk about my journey. And as a comedian, what I'm always trying to do is find a uh, plane of relativity or commonality between my audience. So if we really wanted to encourage a lot more racial harmony in this country, comedy would be one of the most effective ways that we can do that. You know, I think most people in this country without comic relief would be uh, somewhat unaware of the plight of you know people on the continent in africa as well as like mm. some of the poverty that people are dealing with in the uk i think um comedy has always been one of the most effective tools for uh allowing a harmony between people because you know laughter is the most universal language we have that's the one language that we know transcends sexual orientation race gender religious disposition you know even age so you know, it's the it's the most effective and least and most non-lethal weapon we have uh, in order for people to kind of get to know each other. So yeah. to me, it's quite sad as well. And and I also find it strange that, you know, a lot of, you know, even a lot of my white peers that like, you know, when we look at some of the racial tensions we see in society at the moment, it's very strange that, you know, a lot of my predecessors by maybe up to 10, 15 years weren't able to opine it themselves. And I think, I guess maybe part of that is because of their own isolation as well. But I think it's... I think had we provided a space to have even some of the more uncomfortable conversations about race within the UK, we probably wouldn't be at the frayed tensions that we're at now. So I hope that, you know, with my nomination and a lot of the successive nominations that have followed from, like, you know, other great comics, like Darren harriet has been nominated for Best Show, as has London Hughes. Uh, we've had Sophie duke be been nominated for Best Newcomer, as well as uh, uh, Michael Odawale. So, you know, it's... and And what it means as well is that I think a large part of it identification as well and projection is another thing that human beings like to really need in order to thrive as well when you see someone that resembles you doing something you want to do it makes that dream seem so much more tangible and attainable so i think if anything i think the best part of doing it is allowing for other people to know it can be done yeah i think that's definitely a practice that should really be you know passed on all the time i think for example you know i think a lot more people for example were more aware of the uh British Asian community after Bride and Prejudice and like Bendit, like Beckham, because you know, yeah. they took into account like you know, uh, Jane Austen, which is a British staple, as well as football, which is another British staple. So, being yeah. able to have that playing for commonality and having humour allowed for there to be a large amount of people become a lot more ensconced with uh, British Asian culture to the point where you could argue that curry is the national edition of the UK. Um, totally. So, yeah. yeah. So I think in the same way, you know, you look at the rich tapestry of uh, that, uh, you know, the diaspora has contributed towards the country. I think having us uh, giving the opportunity to continue to pursue that, uh, to pursue that commonality, as well as having, you know, comedy as a tool to aid us in the more difficult conversations about racial iniquity. Yeah, the outcome can only be good because whatever we've done before that hasn't worked.
2: So give me I a TV something. show, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me up. <laughs> I, li- I I I. I listened to an interview with Lenny Henry the other day and he said something really profound that I found really interesting. He said, being a black comedian in the UK, he felt like, and at the top of his game, he felt like there was a one-in-one-out system as a black comedian. And because he had that place, it was like, cool, we got our black comedian, we got Lady Henry. Do you yeah, know what I mean? And absolutely. he was like, he, he felt he held that position for so long and it's so wrong that as a society we felt, hey, we've got that mantle filled. Yeah, Do you know what definitely. I mean? Yeah, and I think, and, and what the additional
3: problem that comes with that is that as you exist in solitary in these higher echelons of your craft, it means there's a large detachment from the rest of the people like yourself. So, as long as Lenny's been up there and no one else could be up there, it means it's very hard for him to maintain a link to the community which he comes from. So, yeah. you know, if he wants to perform in front of black audiences, it means that his horizons have been so detached for so long because you can only opine on the things that you observe. If you only observe, you don't observe anyone looking like you or sharing the same platitudes and background as you, it's very hard for that to filter into the work you kind of do. So yeah, I definitely understand that it would have been very difficult for him to be a Coca Pop in a bowl of Rice Krispies, so to speak. So, yeah. you know, it's definitely been an endeavor to mine to make sure that I never uh, pull up the uh, ladder behind me. And yeah. you know, it's been a big part of my endeavor is to collaborate with other black British creatives and, and you know any other creative that exists outside of dominant culture and to really make it very in a very inclusive experience for all of us because you know I think when people feel like there is a one in one out policy and there is an element of tokenism it can encourage some infighting you know because everyone wants to prosper within the industry um, yeah. so we definitely with my friends and a lot of my peers that I work with do we encourage the idea that you know unity is strength and the only way we'll get there is together so as I say, just like with Hackersand, man, when I experience something good, something like you know, winning an Edinburgh Award, I have my own TV show. It's never going to be as enjoyable if I don't get to. And the rest of my people don't eat as well, so yeah, that's always been my ethos.
2: Hackersand's not as good when you're with the person that works with Auto Trader.
3: Absolutely, yeah. If you're if you're being uh, industrially obligated to be somewhere, the food doesn't really <laughs> taste the same. So, whereas if you're eating it with somebody that enjoys it, I like I know the person, like I'm like this. Try that shit. Try that shit right there. What I tell you? What I tell you? That's me. So, um, yeah, I'm. Um, that's me, man. I just think, yeah, just as an ethos, man. Is is I can't. I cannot enjoy a meal while others starve.
2: Uh, Dane, that was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Dangerous Dinners podcast. Me, I felt that was quite a nice place to end. I think we'll end it there. Just before, just before you go, uh, we always ask our guests to rate the meal they've had. Can you please rate the Nando's you had this evening? It was a wrap. It was a medium, but we did get you a spicy wing.
3: You did, but I'm going to give it a straight five. You know what? That spicy wing wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So oh. I'm giving, I'm giving it the full marks, man. Full marks. Can't complain. You know. I could have been a stickler for the whole chips or sorts of luckin' to me, but they're pretty
2: good. Mm. Can't complain. Um, so yeah, I'll give it the full five out of five. Dave Baptiste, that was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you at all.
1: Cold food, but hot guests. It's the Dangerous Dinners Podcast.
2: What did I say? I told I told you, man, I told you it was a funny one. Um, I still can't get over his last meal. His last meal just had me in bits. i physically crying. I love this bloke. Um, thank you so much for making it to this point of the podcast. Another episode is done. If you liked it, we love a rating. It means a massive amount to us if you just go and just get, click us a five star. We really, really do appreciate it. It should take like literally one second. And uh, yeah, it makes us very happy. At Dangerous Dinners Headquarters we will be back maybe next Thursday. Maybe not, depending on the holiday. But season one continues.
0: Bye.